HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit christmastreesny.org. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Sabra Lewis. And we'll just get it out of the way. You were a rockette. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get back to that in a second. There will be no high kicking today. Maybe we'll switch, stretch during break. We'll see. Maybe. Um, but, you know, we want to talk more about the dance of wine and, and your, your beginnings in dance itself uh, at ASU, because Arizona seems like the place most ballet happens. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about that, but it's where I happened, I guess. Were you one of those three-year-old in a tutu, and everyone's like, "Oh, so cute," or was it a ladder in life thing? No, I. It's, well, my mo- my mother and my father put me in ballet, or actually not ballet. They put me in tap when I was about four years old because they thought I had this great promise as a dancer because they would put music on, and I, I apparently was graceful and. Uh, much to my mother's chagrin, my first tap class, I pretty much fell on my ass the whole time and <laughs> couldn't stand up. And she almost pulled me out and thought, maybe this isn't for her. Maybe she shouldn't be a dancer. Maybe I was wrong. And she asked me, and I actually think this is maybe my first memory, as she asked me in the car on the way home, um, so what do you think? And I said, I loved it. And she said, do you want to go back next Thursday? And I said, yes, I want to go back next Thursday. And so she said, okay. And I, I really, really remember that moment in the car. And I don't really remember falling, but I'm sure I did. And um, so she took me back. And, you know, I think maybe we went through six months of very difficult times in me in dance class and doing very poorly. But at some point, things clicked. And then it was uh, smooth sailing from there. So. And that story or that sentiment is similar to wine. I mean, that first trip you made to Italy and then table wine and good food and then steering off course of, of dance <laughs> into a different kind of dance. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. F- falling in love with wine in Italy is easy to do, I think. <laughs> but uh, I think I fell in love with the wine culture uh, more specifically than 
than just what was in the glass because I didn't really know it was in the glass at the time and it didn't seem to matter in the context of what I was doing. I was just traveling and, you know, learning a new culture and having a good time as a tourist. But, you know, it laid some deep, deep roots in me and uh, really has informed my career in the wine business. But as a dancer, I mean, you made it to Broadway. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> and you moved from Arizona as a 20-something yeah, I with was, those aspirations, and you did it, and you made it, and it was yeah. marquee. Yeah, I yeah, I was lucky. I um, I think you know the, st- you know, starting young, I guess, and but really, I, I always was so determined. I always had this really, you know, intense resolve to have a dance career from an early age, and really focused. And I I studied hard. I worked hard, and. I worked hard all the way up through my high school and a little bit of college years. And when I got to New York, I was so naive. I had no idea, no idea what I was doing. <laughs> but I got lucky and I booked my first job, which was the Rockets, and did the Rockets for three years. And then I kind of moved my sights to Broadway. I wanted to learn how to sing and act and, and do things a bit more creatively than the structured aspect of being a Rocket. Um, and I did. And I got I, I got lucky again, I guess. <laughs> but a rocket isn't singular. It's not just all about the kick. I mean, people yeah. wait for that moment and that yeah. music plays and, you know, the chorus line happens and everyone kicks in unison. But there's a lot more dance involved in, in that, you know, Radio City Music Hall uh, show. Sure. Yeah, it's it, it's it's intense. I mean, to be able to dance in a line with, you know, 36 women, you know, all in sync completely. It takes a lot of stamina. It takes a lot of technique. Um, a lot of the Rockettes come from ballet backgrounds. Some don't, um, but everyone has so much talent to give. And yes, I think there is power in that line. And of course, everyone's waiting for the buildup of the kick line. And when it happens, it just totally delivers every time. And to actually do that and, and feel the energy of the, of the line of, you know, being in that line with the women is, is pretty exciting too. I, I always get choked up the first time I, you know, was on stage and, and did my first kick line in the, in the first number of the opening night. It's always a big, um, intense, overwhelming, emotional and powerful experience. And I apologize for, you know, letting the cat out of the bag of, of those that didn't know that you were a rocket and now we'll ask you to drunkenly do high kicks, uh, you know, during or after service. But again, you know, you said you were, you were trying to act and sing and I mean, you, you worked on Phantom of the Opera, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Carousel, Spamalot. Yeah. I mean, these, <laughs> these are not, you know, esoteric little <laughs> off-Broadway plays. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's my, my transition from Rockets, I think, you know, it taught me so much as far as how to, how to perform. That's something I hadn't learned yet in my time um, as a ballet dancer back home in Arizona. So when I... When I uh, did my first year as a rocket, that really, really stretched me as, a, as an artist, even though you might not think of it because it is so structured of a show, but it really did. And that kind of lit a fire to continue uh, finding a bit more artistry in my work as a dancer and a performer. And so I just kind of loved what was going on on Broadway. It spoke to me and uh, I kind of went hard and pursued it. And yeah, The Phantom of the Opera was my Broadway debut. It was a they took a big chance on me because I wasn't the perfect type for the role. And I was, I was in the ballet chorus and I understudied a role called Meg, which is Christine Daae's best friend. But, um, I had, I had a couple great advocates there for me in that show and they, 
they really did push me to uh, get up to the level of Broadway, you know, acting and singing and get me to the point where I was, I was finding so much joy and fulfillment in that show. I did that show for two years and uh, every night learned something new or tried to. <laughs> you know, and you travel the country with things like Camelot, Oklahoma, but it, it was Minsky's, which, which <laughs> let's talk about Just, this play, um, yeah. you know, out in L.A., you got to be part of the creative process. Yes. And, you know, being able to build something, you know, talk about choreography and, and staging. Um, you know, I always think of that directly correlating, you know, the dance that happens in front of the house during the night of service. <laughs> but, you know, you, you get to um, kind of attune the structure of what you want to see and how it shows. Yeah, that was really, really, wow. I mean, what an awesome experience. Uh, Minsky's was a project that um, Casey Nicola was was working on at the time, um, who was pretty famous for the Book of Mormon and a few other shows, Spamalot, of course. Um, and we just, it's based on the book called The Night They Raided Minsky's, which is about, um, it's about burlesque and the dying age of burlesque. And so it wasn't about it wasn't about stripping or anything. It was it was about the art of the burlesque and the art of the laugh and the art of the, the chorus girl and the show girl. And so the girls in the show were really, really strong characters. And the ensemble was, you know, each girl had a very different character and story. And we were all sort of pushed to the, to the forward edge of what you do in a chorus of a Broadway show and a Broadway musical. And yeah, I got... <laughs> created this this role called flossy and i wore glasses and i was kind of nerdy and silly and um but then we you know we we had to do these really like intense burlesque numbers and we had to wear burlesque costumes which is very little clothing and i remember all of us being so it was so difficult for us and it took each girl a certain amount of time to get to the point where we were liberated enough to dance like that and not feel embarrassment or shame and once we did it was super powerful actually and it was just this great celebration of the female form and um and it was a it was a great art of the tease you know so there was nothing vulgar about it but coming from a you know maybe classical background a <laughs> ballet background and even in the rocks rockets it's so um it's so classic and and so classy and it's it's not really so much about being a sexual object but yeah, for Minsky's, it was a it pushed the envelope for sure. So, I mean, this might be a little bit of a stretch, um, but I mean, ha, can you equate that experience to being a woman in wine today? I mean, I don't mean the overt sexuality or having to deal with that, but you know, you, you are really naked in front of a table, sure. And there's this very classical system of how wine is spoken about and presented, and more and more psalms are taking that leap of faith and breaking that mold. And I know you have. I know yeah. <laughs> you were telling me the way that you talk to people is, is a little bit different too, but you know, how, how do you study a foundation of wine and then become your own wine person? Well, I, I mean, I've never thought about this, but I, I would say that my role doing a show like Minsky's really did help find my voice, and there's a certain amount of uh, transition in the wine business like that too, and, and just finding your own power and uh at a table when it is very intimidating to talk to people that potentially know a whole lot more than you do or have seen more of the world than you do and and you know are old men with money <laughs> or or young people that don't care um so how i guess i found my voice is just it's just really 
diving into knowledge and, and context and stories of winemakers and stories of my my personal travels. And I think that has found, you know, has made me realize or find my power at the table. Um, that's, that's everything to me. So yeah, I guess it's true. You do feel naked because you walk up to each table every single night with a clean slate and it's just you and them and nobody really knows who anyone is yet. And you just, it takes seconds to click with someone and you either do or you don't. And then you have to figure out how to how to make it work from there. So I mean, but unlike the Rockettes where you know what you're going to do every night and yeah. it, it's standardized, yeah. um, th- this is a situation where there's so much improv at play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. And that's why I think I, I'm just as in love with being a sommelier and a, and a wine professional as I ever was as a dancer because it is completely creative. Every night is totally different in that, you know, if you're lucky to work in a wonderful restaurant with great tools, there's so much you can do. And there's so much, you know, so many ways to think outside the box with a table and uh, in the art of hospitality. So that's, yeah, every day is completely different. And then, you know, you have pressure when when repeat guests come in and you develop a wonderful rapport with them. You, you've got to do something completely different. So it's always like, all right, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do tonight? How am I going to, how am I going to, you know passion this person and you know are they are they ready to learn about this or you know can i push them here here so or do they even want to hear the story or or should i just shut up yeah because you know uh, <laughs> i was asking you what's the wine that kind of changed everything for you you know and most psalms get this and um i'd been reading an interview and you said something about drc 66 sure. yeah but yeah i always wonder with a wine like that is it the history is it the story about that wine or is it the flavor well is is it that sip and then is that imbued with everything before or is it strictly delicious i you know what for me that moment was the context of how that wine was served and opened and 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 then it happened to deliver as well it's the 66 uh drc romani saint the mary mange uh labeling and the the wine was something that I'd been looking at on the list at the Nomad, um, where I was a Psalm under Thomas. And I really, really was super curious about that wine. And of course the legacy and the history. And at the time it was kind of one of the higher priced bottles, um, on the list. And so there was a lot of energy around that wine where I was really curious about. And I just happened to have the right, the right guests that came in and like over the course of the evening sort of pushed me and said, what's your white whale on the wine list? And I could have downplayed it, but I didn't. And for whatever reason, I found my power in that moment with him. And I said, do it, let's do it. And I just like, it was like a face off. And he kind of looks back and like, yeah, let's do this. Like, and I kind of looked at it like, I played it like it's no big deal. Like, obviously you should try this wine, period. (laughs) And he did. And I was like super excited, you know, it was pretty pretty exciting bottle to open as a, as a younger Psalm and open the bottle. And of course, like it just, it did, it, do, it totally over delivered. It was, it was a magical bottle and you know, we got lucky. It could have been not a great bottle, but it was a great bottle. And the whole team, the whole Psalm team was excited and the whole restaurant I think was excited. It was just a really great moment for everyone and particularly for the guest. And I think because it made the guests so happy and, and, was one of the greatest wines he had tasted in maybe ever. 
and and this was a person that that you know had tasted a lot of wine. I think that was why it was such a magical moment for me because it came in the context of hospitality. Well, on that, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, more with Sabra Lewis and the Rocket Somalia. You're listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. We'll be right back. Ever wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State-grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arrival to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer, and trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space in agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. I'm here with Sabra Lewis. And you know, we were talking dance. We're talking about the, the dance of wine right now and, and certainly DRC. Um, <laughs> and if you don't know that acronym, look it up. I mean, <laughs> it is. It, it, it's, it's one of those legacy wines. Um, yeah. But you've worked in so many wonderful restaurants recently. Gunter Seeger, uh, Shuko before that, uh, Nomad Hotel, Rouge Tomat. But... That way, we're talking about, like, German. We're talking about, I mean, Shuko was a, a fusion of Asian cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nomad Hotel, which has a, a library and a library of wine. Um, Rouge Tomat, where I know Pascaline has just such a wonderful list of Loire wines. But we're talking about the world here. Um, and through wine, you get to experience the world. And lately, you've been traveling. And yes. Champagne <laughs> has been the destination and it's one of my favorite, and it's one of the best times of years to think about opening a bottle of bubbles. So sure. <laughs> is, is, is champagne a celebration year-round, or is it, you know... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, you know, ch- champagne has been lucky to travel there uh, a couple times in two months, <laughs> maybe more than I, I should, but uh, I definitely feel my heart is connected there for many reasons. Um, it's exciting region to learn about as a sommelier um it ticks all the boxes you learn about a vast majority of terroir and it's a really large wine region very complicated uh terroir and also the uh the variables of winemaking are infinite there i mean the process of champagne is complicated and nuanced and there's a, a lot of decisions a winemaker can make to make a great champagne or not um the economics of the industry is really inter- interesting as well. But I think it should be opened all the time. I try to open it all the time myself. Um, I find immense pleasure in champagne uh, and drinking it. And I see why people want to drink it in December and for the holidays. But for me, I drink it when I'm upset and I drink it when I'm happy. It's, it's, it's the... When I can when I can afford it, it's a go-to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously expenses is... is 
you know, particular to, to, to the client, but I mean, there, there are reasonable champagnes too. For sure. Um, champagne doesn't have to be, you know, like a DRC style yeah, no. reach wine. Yeah. What are your favorite kind of everyday or every cuisine champagnes? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think don't, don't, uh, underestimate the value of a half bottle. You know, you, you can get great half bottles at not crazy high prices in most restaurants. Um, or in retail shops too, and so if you just want to dabble in, that's a great way to go and add it to your dinner or add it to your experience with food. Um, I there's there's so many producers, uh, it's hard to to narrow it down. Um, recently, I, I really do think uh, what Frederick Savart is doing is wonderful. Um, I think he's really like like upping the game in in Champagne. I think Raphael Baresh is super consistent, and the wines are are very pleasurable and exciting. I think if you want um, to understand a little bit of what Anselm Salos is doing, I would drink Alexander Charton because I think he has captured the spirit of that. And those wines are, all of them you can get at a retail price, you know, fairly, they're entry-level wines, you know, fairly reasonable. I would say, you know, around $30, $35, maybe $40 now. There's, there's, people are starting to catch on, so the yeah. prices are going up <laughs> a little bit. But, um, you know, that's not... That's not crazy for a bottle of oh, it's not. I mean, again, excellent champagne. We can refer to DRC, but yeah. I mean, if you're thinking of even Chianti Classico, Super Tuscans, I mean, uh, even right. Jura, which was like this little wine region yeah. that everyone loved. I mean, the prices are, are becoming bonkers here now. Yeah, for sure. So as, yeah. as a sum, obviously yeah. putting on the list, uh, it's a little more expensive than retail. W- what are the more affordable regions of the world right now that you're trying to? open people up to in general or within champagne in general in general oh um yeah i mean uh, we talked about austrian wine but austrian riesling and austrian grunewaldin are always great great uh examples of value because they over deliver the quality generally um and there's there's interesting things going on with those producers i do think german wine as well also over delivers there's a really fascinating um sort of things going on with non-Riesling varietals, um, Weissburgunder, which is Pinot Blanc, and people don't take it super seriously, so the prices aren't so high, and they tend to be very food-friendly, very clean and elegant. Um, yeah, the Jura is, you know, this, we think of it and we know of it as a hipster wine region, but I totally disagree with that. I, a, Upon visiting there, I realized it's one of the most traditional wine regions in France and, and outdates Bordeaux even, and the people think of it as a traditional place. They don't think of it as a hipster, cool wine. So I sort of roll my eyes at that that sort of thinking from Psalms and other wine people about Jura because it's quite incorrect. Um, there is some new, you know, producers doing some innovative things in the Jura that are not traditional. So I, I can say that, too. But for the most part, it's a, it's a really traditional place. I mean, let's talk about those traditions from, from a harvest standpoint, because I know you've done a, a, a couple um, <laughs> with Abe Schoner. Yeah. Uh, with Ra- Raj. Speaking of untraditional. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, you know, he's part of Red Hook Winery here, mm-hmm. and it, it's fascinating to see him. Um, I forget his other partner in it, um, Bob. But, you know, seeing those wines kind of run the gamut of traditional. And sure. Not. Yeah. Well, Abe's fascinating. I love Abe. Um I, I love Abe's courage to to just go for it and try things that no one else is doing. And he's not afraid to 
he's just not afraid, period. So when you approach make, making wine like that, wow, I mean, you, you can't fail because you're just do, you're, you're doing things to, you know, either provoke the conversation or, or figure out a new way of winemaking and, and figure out a new, a new technique or, or something to make things more delicious or to make it more pleasurable. And Abe has an incredible palate and he drinks very well and he has a, a, a really um, wonderful repertoire of what he's tasted and has huge respect for that. And maybe you don't care for all of the wine in his lineup. Maybe you do. I think, I think people like Abe are important because they push the envelope and it causes us as sommeliers and, and wine drinkers to think a little bit more about it. And yeah. I mean, like going back to champagne, uh, that is a genre in it of itself. <laughs> yeah. Are winemakers trying to create new genres? I mean, is, is that even possible at this point in wine? For, for In champagne? Just in wine in general. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's still a lot to experiment on. And, and the reason why is that you just get one chance a year. You get one harvest. So if a winemaker is lucky enough to have vineyards and lucky enough to have a long life, how many, how many vintages do they have? You know, maybe 40, maybe, maybe 50 if they're lucky. Mostly it's like 20 or 30 and then they retire. Um, so that's... 20, 30, 40 chances to get it right or do something that you can sell <laughs> a year. Uh, so the learning curve is slow on those things. So I think there's there's so much more to understand. I think, you know, certainly with winemaking techniques, but even more so, I mean, the study of terroir is really the slow going thing because that's way more complicated and, and intricate and understanding your soil and the site that you have vineyards on and and what those grapes are telling you and the fact that we have climate change which is a real thing and you're now our vintages are totally different than what your their parents or grandparents I thought that had was a good thing with. that just means we get wine earlier in the year <laughs> well it depends where you are <laughs> sometimes you don't get wine because the vintage wiped you out but um yeah i guess in california they've had a lot of earlier vintages but it, it's it's not about heat it's about um uh, strange weather patterns that, that are causing is the 2016 vintage in Champagne is a great example of that. Yeah. It's really, it's devastating for them. And they, they saw things that they had never seen in Champagne before and, and really struggled with how to deal what, with what it. were those meteorological, uh, well, they, they got frost early on. So frost is devastating for a, a vine trying to, trying to, um, flower and bud early on in the spring, it'll kill everything. Um, so that, that reduced a lot of yields right there. Right after frost, they got intense rain. They got a lot of mildew. So the mildew was really strong this year and attacked everything. Attacked all the berries and all of the, even down to the roots, which is really unusual. That's something they hadn't seen before. If you were biodynamic and organic, you really struggled because you had no defense, especially if you were newly converted and your your vines were not um, super old and strong and healthy. They they really, really struggled. Um, after that, got a crazy heat wave, and they got sunburned grapes. Um, they've never seen sunburn in Champagne because it's not a warm place. So uh, the reason why they saw sunburn is because a lot of the vigneron chose to prune, heavily prune the leaves to deal with the mildew and to get more air. So they don't have that trellis above. So they to didn't have them. the protection. And then when they got the heavy sun, they got sunburned grapes. So we, we don't know what sunburned grapes is taste like so we'll see in a couple of years what this vintage does and if it's if it matters or not maybe could be amazing you know could be 
really it weird. could be a new genre of wine. Could be. You know, and that's that's what I always wonder too. Is is wine the character arc of the winemaker, or is it of the land? And it's obviously a little more of that symbiosis. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think I think the more a vigneron understands his land, the more he can he can express the land. So I think that's a that's a strong strong correlation, and also just you know the the energy of the person and how they make the wine and how they care about it. It really really does matter. It all matters. You know, I always laugh because I get weather reports from my wife every once in a while. <laughs> and it's like, there was hail in such and such place. And I'm like, I don't know why I need to know that. Then I realize she's telling me, you know, this wine vintage just got destroyed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's pretty devastating. Yeah, it's well, it, it, it matters because it affects our pocketbook. <laughs> so if you, you know, have a, a wine region like Burgundy that had significant amounts of hail the past several vintages you know the the prices have to go up and so we we see that at the retail or the the restaurant level um especially if it's wine that you really want you know you you have to pay more for it and the prices won't go back down they're going to stay at that level even if even if they have a string of great vintages it's that's just it. That's just the way it works. Well, I mean, let's talk about drinking during the holidays um, because we yeah. all, all need many. But you are at Terror Tribeca mm-hmm. with the great Paul Greco right now. Yep. <laughs> and uh, that book is like a Christmas tale. I've yes. been reading through that. And, um, <laughs> when someone puts that book, and if, if you've never experienced this Terror, you know, Bible, <laughs> go, go and see it. When someone puts that in front of you, I, I always said, you know, I'm intimidated, but that's kind of the point. Yeah. That's the point. And the point is to look at it and see how ridiculous it looks and like close it and look at the psalm that's standing in front of you and have a conversation. And and the one-on-one conversation is where the magic happens. And of course, the list is exciting to read. And if you're a wine geek, you can dive in and start to read all of the intricate poetry that Paul writes and, and exciting commentary and controversial commentary. But uh, it's it's designed to really start a conversation, and and Paul hires great people, and he hires people that have more more importantly passion and can talk through these intricacies. So, you know, talk to your son. Do you have that like Proustian questionnaire? Uh, are are there check marks of what you ask somebody of what they want to drink? Is it red or white? What are you eating? No, I, Where are you from? I talk, yeah, it depends. I change it table to table or person to person. I try to use my instinct and read what would be the most appropriate thing. And um, I, I tend to talk less about flavor and more about texture because that makes more sense to people. Um, flavor is really subjective and everyone what, has different experiences. What, what, what is a texture of wine? Well, how, how it feels, you know, in your mouth when you're drinking it, you know, things... Things that are light, effervescent, things that are kind of medium. A lot of people really enjoy thick, heavy reds during this time of year. So kind of navigate through the texture, and then we go from flavor profile to, you know. Then, then it, yeah, I think just being sensitive to where someone's at and their, their wine knowledge or discovery. or I mean, you know. even in the range of champagne, there are different textures. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Huge, which people don't realize. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what are they? Yeah. What is that gamut? Well, I mean, now we can talk about like things like dosage and the, the trend for a lot of winemakers to do like a brut nature, non-dosage wine, something that's super, super dry and intense and really focused and linear. And then there's there's more classic and traditional champagne that has a lot more texture and, and uh, a little bit higher dosage and, and 
easier drinking, I guess. And then there's, there's, now we talk about age in wine too. So the more you age a champagne before you bottle it, um, the more texture it kind of gains over time. It becomes less like harsh and acidic and, and more bready and that classic like Christmas brioche thing that people love. So, so I mean, even texture has a character arc. Yeah. So there's yeah. that of, there's that of the winemaker, that of the land, yeah. that of the mouthfeel. Sure. I mean, I, I don't see why this isn't a three-act Broadway play that you're producing. <laughs> and I hope it is someday. Sometimes it is. <laughs> I mean, is, is there a specific style of dance that you can equate to specific wines? Hmm. I hadn't thought of it, but sure, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, like, get, I guess you could, you could relate tempo and texture easy. You know, tempo of, of something in, in Allegro that's like, very fast and bright and sparkly and light on his feet and versus something that's, you know, takes a little bit more time, <laughs> more time to savor, more time to digest, more time to discover. Then, I mean, lastly, what is the Rockette <laughs> high kick wine? <laughs> Mine? Oh, uh, whatever is in my cellar that's, I don't feel guilty opening. <laughs> um, besides grower champagne and champagne producers that really uh, speak to me. I, I drink a lot of Chablis. I'm pretty classic in what I love. Um, I drink a lot of Chablis. I drink a fair amount of Riesling. Last night I opened a, an awesome Beaujolais. That really nailed it for me last night. Oh, I can't say enough about <laughs> yeah. Beaujolais. We celebrate yeah. Beaujolais Nouveau instead of Thanksgiving. <laughs> we really the Thursday before is more special to us. That's great. I and love it. you know we try to drink through as many crews as possible. But you know it's it's not. Fuck George DeBuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've said it. Yeah. Don't, don't buy your Beaujolais at Costco. No, like, no. There's some wonderful, wonderful yeah. things out there. Yeah, for sure. And it's hard, you know, you don't want to turn someone off to trying a, a crappy Beaujolais and then not ever wanting to try it again, you know? Like, I want to introduce someone to a great Beaujolais so they can see what's happening now, you know, instead of what was happening in the late 80s, early 90s. So, yeah. Well, so. I mean, you said a word, too, about uh, champagne linear hmm. and it's one of those things like when you have really crappy champagne <laughs> there's very little you can say about it that's nice <laughs> but when you have something and you realize what that definition means just by tasting it sure then yeah. you know there's a craft there's an art behind making it yeah yeah definitely there's a lot of ways to mess it up <laughs> um yeah uh, i think uh, to have a linear champagne means you have to have a really great and focused understanding of your terroir so that your terroir can show through, you know, maybe the lack of overindulgent winemaking. Um, and that takes a lot of guts <laughs> as a producer. Um, I don't make wine. I, I don't, I don't know that I would be able to do it, but I have a lot of respect for people that do and, and find that, you know, find that voice. And when you open that bottle of champagne and, and the more you sort of dive into this, you know, crazy world of terroir, you, you open this bottle and you, you say, wow, that, that is, that is totally what lewd tastes like to me. That is totally what the obe tastes like to me. This is, this is the Clos de Guas. This is it. Like this is every time it's specific and, you know, you, you start to like really hone in on these things, like intense chalkiness of the Cote de Blanc and all of the pleasures that arrive with that. Well, it couldn't be more apropos that you're working in a place called Terroir, and <laughs> you can talk so much about that Terroir itself, so please go see Sabra. Behind the bar there, 
maybe a little high <laughs> kick for somebody someday. <laughs> if, it, it depends on what they order, I guess. If drunk enough. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And, you know, just looking forward to being on the other side of the bar and, uh, you know, picking your brain about what to drink next. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Big thanks to the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, Music by Cookies, and David Engineering. Cheers. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.